this old preacher Ravenhill, as I listened to him one day, put an idea in my head, especially about Christ and how we think about him. I'll expand on that thought with you. We think through Christ as we read through the Gospels. We realize that uh, Christ did a lot of marvelous things, and we learn and talk about those things often. He did miracles, which were phenomenal, incredible things. He would feed crowds of five and 3,000. He raised a man from the dead, said, Lazarus, come out. And he taught the scriptures, and when he went to the scriptures, or when he spoke, people listened. It says, it says they wondered what kind of authority with which this man spoke. Says, no one's ever spoke with this kind of authority. When he spoke, people listened. Christ did all kinds of phenomenal things. But it's incredible. As we look at the Gospels, we see in Luke 11, 1, this. That after the disciples had watched Jesus pray, they said, Rabbi or teacher, teach us to pray also. Or teach us to pray like the other rabbis instruct Jesus, teach me to pray. Now, why is that? I don't know for sure, but it must have really been something to watch the king of the universe pray. Right? As I think about this and I read about it, what Isaiah says and that Christ was in the bosom of the Father and all eternities passed. In perfect intimacy, Christ was with God. The three in one, the one in three, in perfect harmony. And for the first time, Christ ascends to the earth in bodily form. If anyone knew what intimate communication was with God, it was Christ, was it not? And so the disciples watched this man pray. Say, Rabbi, teach us, man, I want to pray. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to do miracles. They did miracles. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to speak with your kind of authority. No, they did, not with the authority of God, but with the authority of the scriptures. They did say, Lord, teach us to pray. So what better place than to look, to learn how to pray, than to Christ. Amen? There's many specific examples. We could look at Daniel 9 and and Daniel's great prayer. We could look at Jonah in the belly of the whale. We could look at some of David's great prayers and Psalms, Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17. But really, even though there's other prayers and other places to list, the list goes on and on. The example in Luke 11, as we look at tonight, Matthew 6, Surely we can't find a better place. 52 words we find here, and you can read them in less than 20 seconds without taking a breath. It's admired for its brevity and its depth, and it reminds us that prayer doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be drawn out. It does have to be according to the way the Lord set it up. <clears throat> the teachings of the rabbis of the day on prayer. I was in uh, Jerusalem this summer, I was in Israel for a while, and one of the places we went was up to what they call the Wailing Wall. Now, the Jews aren't heavy on that term. They don't appreciate that much. But what we have is uh, many, many Orthodox Jews going up to a wall where they believe is the closest place they can get to where the old temple was, the second temple, and uh, praying, or at least what they would call praying. It's called the Wailing Wall. And I was talking to a gentleman there about my age. Orthodox Jew, and he was dressed. They can't pray unless they're in their prayer shawl and dressed a certain way. And I was talking to him, and uh, he didn't really know the Bible. He didn't seek any authority from it. But what he did have was a book of prayers from his rabbi. I found that interesting. In 2,000 years, it seems not much has changed. <clears throat> and as I tried to share the gospel with him and teach him about Christ, 
He went to where many Jews go and said, well, the Lord is one and not three. And so we talked about that, but he didn't remember Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord your God is one. Didn't know that passage even existed. He did go to his prayer book and show in a place where there, the rabbi had said, the Lord is one. Gotten away from the authority of the word and towards the rabbis. So you can see in that day what a big deal it was. And even today to listen to the rabbis and how they pray. <clears throat> And this disciple's prayer, it's better to call it that, I suppose, than the Lord's prayer. It couldn't have been Christ's prayer. Jesus says, forgive us our sins. Jesus didn't have any sins to be forgiven. Really, his prayers in John 17. But now he's instructing the disciples, and by extension, us, how to pray. So then the disciple's prayer is right in the false square in the middle of Matthew 6. You can turn there if you want. Matthew 6 begins this way. Take heed not to practice your righteousness before men so as to be seen by them. He applies that to three areas, giving, fasting, and praying. Second of which is praying here, and it's what we'll look at tonight. But I bring that up because praying is a sacred thing. As we instruct on prayer tonight, we don't pray to be seen by men. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who pray on the street corners whining to be seen. Why do their righteousness before men? Prayer is not a thing to be shown off. Prayer is a sacred thing. It's incredible to me that it seems like the one thing Christ did not want us to do with this prayer is repeat it over and over and over again in our church services. In fact, he says, pray like this or according to this or, if you will, along these lines. He doesn't say, pray these words. I know myself and many of you have probably been in areas where we just repeat this mindlessly over and over again. But he says, even in the same chapter, don't be like the hypocrites who think they will be heard because there are many words. Vain repetition. He says, so we don't do this just for vain repetition. We don't do it to be seen by men. We do it for God's glory. We do it because God commanded us to and we do it because it gives us great joy to pray and to be in intimate connection with our great God and King. It was meant as a wonderful example and is a wonderful example to us. If you're not already there, turn to Matthew 6 and we'll read that together. Sixth chapter of Matthew. And you know, in uh, Nehemiah, for you guys who were here last week, what did we read about? Six hours they spent reading the scriptures. And what did they do during those six hours? They stood. Let's stand out of the respect of readings for God's word. Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Did not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me together now? Lord, thanks for instruction from your word, your holy word, your pure word, your spotless word, your sword, as we learned in weeks past. Lord, help us now to learn about prayer. We don't pray now just because it's something we do or because it's something we do every week, but we pray because you've called us to, you've commanded us to, and because it brings great delight to our soul. Lord, help us to not pray like we've been taught by experience, but help us to pray like your word instructs us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Our Father who art in heaven, the first word is our. 
O-W-R, and we could really spend all night. We could spend all semester if we wanted to in these first three words. Our Father, who art in heaven. This was a model prayer for the body, for the disciples, by extension us. As I mentioned earlier, it couldn't have been simply a prayer for Christ. Christ doesn't pray for his forgiveness of sins. His sins don't exist. But he says, our. Remember last week as I talked briefly about the independence of our generation? And maybe not just our generation, but of our time. I don't want to commit to much. At least I didn't used to want to until I saw that God has called us to be in community. But I would rather live. It's easier for me to live outside of accountability, outside of fellowship, in an individual life. But we see over and over and over again, that's not what Christ calls us to. He calls us to community. He calls us to fellowship in a body. The first word here is our. Our Father. Whose Father? Our Father. Everyone here who's been born again in Christ. That's whose Father. Our Father. This isn't teaching universal fatherhood. You guys remember in John 8.14 where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you guys are of your father, the devil. He says this world is in two categories. Either you're of your father, the devil, or you're of your father, the Lord, God in heaven. But Jesus tells us in John 1.2 that we have the right to become sons of God. Sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. So if we're his sons, that makes us, that makes him our, our father. Father, that's the next word. Almost immediately we're exposed to as we look at and think about the word father, how selfish our prayers often are, how selfish my prayers often are. How does Jesus start? He doesn't start with me. He starts with father. We look first to the Lord. Interesting that we're not talking about God or around God, but we're talking to God. This is something even in the songs that we sing. Think about the songs we sing tonight. Tremendous songs. Some of those songs talk about God, and some of those songs talk to God. Um, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. We didn't sing that tonight. Or, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary to you. So some songs talk about God. Some songs talk to God. Neither is better or worse. Sorry, all my examples are from 90s worship. Wow, CD hits. (laughs) But we pray to God, to our Father. Prayer is different. We don't talk around God or about God. We talk to God. He is our Father. I remember reading a, sounds silly, but it stuck in my mind. I remember looking at somebody's Facebook one time and looking there at their about me section. All it said was, their thing said about me, and then it said, it's not. I thought about that for a long time. It's not about us, and prayer's not about us. Now, we'll get to us, but first and foremost, it's about the Lord. Ray Stedman's book about prayer wrote this, Someone has pointed out that the word Father answers all the philosophical questions about the nature of God. A father is a person, therefore God is not a blind force behind an inscrutable machinery of the universe. It's not the Wizard of Oz. A father is able to hear, therefore God is able... Therefore, God is not some impersonal being, aloof from our troubles and our problems. Above all, a father is predisposed by his loving relationship to give careful, attentive ear to what his child says. God is this way. From a father, a child can surely expect a reply. I was reading through some Jewish prayers in preparation for this message, and I realized and was reminded that the Jews knew God as a father, but only as a distant father. 
if you read through Jewish prayers and even look through Hebrew scripture, very few times is, if any, is he referred to as a father in the sense that we think about father. Almost always it's accompanied by holy or king father or something of the like. So they didn't know him as what we later learned him as the Abba father or our daddy. This is the intimate father, our father who takes care of us. He's adopted us. He's not like our imperfect, wonderful as they may be, earthly fathers. God is a perfect heavenly father. Where is he? He's in heaven. The third word, heaven. Lest reverence be lost in sentimentalism, Jesus gives us the next word. And he reminds us, God's in heaven. Now it's true that God is everywhere. In fact, God is inside of you. I mentioned earlier, if you're a believer, if you have the spirit inside of you, God is in you. But it's pertinent to remember that prayer is not only who God is and who we are, but it's where he is and where he and where we are. His authority. God is in heaven. God is here also and intimately acquainted with his children. So important to remember, I'll say it again, two things in prayer, who God is and where he is, who we are and where we are. Even though the words personal relationship with Jesus Christ are nowhere in the New Testament, that's common language in our Christian circles, isn't it? Why is that? Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You ever think about that? Now, just because it's not in the New Testament doesn't mean it's extra biblical. I think it's a fairly accurate term if we think about it biblically. God gives us the idea of relationship again and again in the scriptures, adoption, his sons and daughters. But the idea of a personal relationship, see, I don't have a a personal relationship with Evan the way I do with God or even with my mother the way I do with God or with Nate the way I do with God. My personal relationship with God is one of intimacy, yes, but it's also one of reverence. It's also one of great awe. Knowing and fearing the Lord doesn't just exist as a non-believer. It exists as a believer as well, even though it looks differently. By those whom approach him, he must be regarded as holy. Leviticus 10.3, we remember that from this summer. Ecclesiastes 5.2, do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Remember, this is the God that we pray to our intimate Father, and yet our Holy Father, who is in heaven. That leads us to the next part. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be thy name. This is a priority, a prayer of priority. Lord, hallowed be your name. Your name be first, highest, utmost, best. The word here means to make sacred in one's own life. It has rightly been said that you do not make God Lord of your life. Rather, he is Lord. The question is of submission. Lord, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. In 1 Samuel 18.30, we see that David's name was exalted by his peers and those around him. Why? Because they'd seen his conduct. When it says they extolled his name, it doesn't mean that they wrote David in larger letters. Okay? It means that they lifted up the person of David. And so likewise, we lift up not God's name, in and of itself, but God's name because it extols and appreciates his character and who he is. What did he say to Moses? I can never stop thinking about this. I am. Who shall I tell him sent you? There's no one to compare him to. I am. I am that I am. He is God, the one, the rock, the redeemer. 
should also ring out in our realities, a reality in our lives, that there are areas of our life where God is not hallowed. Are there areas of your life that God is not hallowed, where his name is not being held up as holy? Or is there coarse joking or crude humor that needs to be eliminated? Areas where God's name is not holy or hallowed. It's as if we were saying, may the whole of my life be a source of delight to you. And may it be an honor to the name which I bear, which is your name. Psalms 9.10 says this, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know what? Your name. They do what? They put their trust in him. So many start from a wrong point of view. That's why when we're taught through the gospel this summer, we start with the realization of, who God is. So many problems, so many errors, even so many sins in our life can be corrected with a right view of God. Lord, give me a right view of you. Give me a view that is according with your scriptures. Hallowed be your name. Psalms 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. John seventeen six. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Who was Christ? Who did he represent God and he represent God's name? That's whom he manifests to the people. Your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Your name. Nothing has the power to save but your name. What a name it is. Amen. What a God we worship. What a mighty king. We must start in prayer there. We must start with our father and we must remember correctly who he is. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Someday there will be a plain, apparent, and evident manifestation of God's perfect kingdom on earth. The Lord tells us that one day his kingdom will come in fullness. Isaiah 35.1 says the desert shall blossom as a rose. Jeremiah 31.34 says all shall know him from the greatest to the least. And Micah tells us that they will beat their swords into plowshares. One day his perfect kingdom will come on earth. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come quickly. Are you homesick? Do you long for heaven? You ought to. Remember Paul's conundrum in his heart. Remember his controversy? Oh, he was homesick. I get homesick sometimes. Not just for the ranch, but for my real home. I'm just an alien. You're just a sojourner. One day his kingdom will come in fullness, but this prayer does not speak only of that kingdom. It speaks of the present realities of the kingdom. See, we have a duty to sweat and to work towards that kingdom while we are here on earth. That kingdom now is salvation, it's commitment, it's submission to Christ. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does not shine. His successive journeys run, his kingdom stretched from shore to shore, till moons wax and wane no more. Remember that old hymn? You thought it was brand new, didn't you? Just because it got rewritten. Me too. <laughs> His name shall reign. His kingdom will come. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we see is the next section. Literally, the Greek here means whatever you wish to happen, or excuse me, the Hebrew, or the Greek, whatever, you're, <laughs> whatever you want to happen, whatever your will is, let it happen immediately. Let it happen right now. <clears throat> this is a prayer of submission. Remember what Christ prayed in the... In the garden, Lord, remove this cup from me. Nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done. 
Yours keeps us focused on His will. God is sovereign, so why do we pray? Do you ever think about this? You ever sit back and lay in bed at night? I don't lay in bed at night. When I hit the pillow, I'm out like that. <laughs> I remember you talking about the other night. I don't even remember sometimes going to bed. I just, <laughs> just wake up and realize I went to bed. But do you ever sit and contemplate? <clears throat> if God is sovereign, then why do we pray? I mean, if he knows all and does all and will accomplish all anyways, why do we pray? Or to say it another way, if we do pray, then is God really sovereign? The answer is yes and yes. Why? Because it brings him glory, because he's commanded us to, because we enjoy it. But how do those things work perfectly? John MacArthur says, I believe there's an answer to that question, but I don't know what it is. (laughs) Nor do I. It's one of the apparent paradoxes in scripture. Jacob, who saved you? God did. But Jacob threw himself on Christ. How did you get saved? Boy, from the foundations of the earth, my name was written in the Lamb's book of life. I was predestined. I was adopted as a son. How did you get saved? I repented and believed in Christ. It's both, isn't it? Only by the grace of God do we do those things. Who wrote, who wrote James? Who wrote it? James did. I thought the Holy Spirit wrote James. He did. And yet James' personality and his uh, manner and his language is fleshed out in James. Who wrote James? The Holy Spirit wrote James. That's who wrote James. Who wrote James? James wrote James. That's who wrote James. Do you see? It's one of those things. I don't know why exactly it is. Or how exactly prayer works. All I know is it does. And I believe that God has commanded me to do it. And therefore I do it. I do it and I believe him for it. And don't let your theology destroy your prayer life. I say that tentatively, but... There's some of you who will do that. There's many people who do that. I really believe that. They, they look at theology, a beautiful thing, the doctrine of scriptures, and they let it destroy their prayer life. If God is sovereign, then why pray? <clears throat> Your doctrine, the, the theology of scripture, the teaching of scripture, the study of God and his word ought to enhance. It ought to, uh, it ought to build up your prayer life. It ought not to tear it down. Don't let theology ruin your prayer life. Not my will, but thine be done. I delight to do your will, David writes. Your law is written within my heart. Lord, make your kingdom come on earth. Now we move into the portion about us. His prayer about God, yes. And yet in his kindness, he said, come and ask. Give us this day our daily bread. To think that God doesn't care about our physical needs would be a a wrong idea, a wrong statement. Have you ever prayed, Lord, give us this day our daily bread? Have you ever prayed for your daily bread? When I think of this, I can't help but think about our before meal prayers. Can you? I don't mean to mock. I want to be careful not to mock anyone here. Cause, and I can say this because I've done it myself. But think about our meal prayers sometimes. How generic they can be. Right? Lord, bless the, mo- the food that is before us. Bless the hands that prepared it. Bless this food to our bodies. It's like the Johnny Appleseed prayer. Just, just, it's not true prayer. It's just prayer for the sake of saying things before you feed your mouth. Do you have religious 
prayer that needs to be filtered out of your life? Is it habitually there, not because the Bible teaches you to pray that way, but because you've heard other people pray that way? I'm not asking you to pick apart every word in your prayer. I'm just asking you to think about how you pray before your meals, about how you pray in the morning. Let your prayer be shaped by Scripture, not by those around you. How about praying for the salvation of someone else as you sit in the cafeteria and sit down to eat your food? about praying for the waiter or the waitress that brought you your food to your table, about praying for their soul and asking the Lord for it. Let's turn to the scriptures and let them be shaping our, our prayers, not just the way our buddy prayers or the way our grandpa prayers. Those aren't bad prayers, but we have to be careful. Prayer is a sacred thing. The word says, actually it says in just verse 8, it says, Your father knows what you pray before you pray. Partly we pray these things to inform our heart of the dependency on God for our daily needs. Who gives us our bread? I don't care if you've ever hungered or if you've never hungered. Your bread, your food, it still comes from God. In Daniel 4.30 we see this. Nebuchadnezzar, the great uh, ruler of Babylon, he's the proud monarch. He stands on the battlements of his palace and he says this. Is not this great Babylon which I have built in my mighty power... For the glory of my majesty. And what does God do? He humbles him like that, doesn't he? Why? What's he have him do? He crawls on the ground like a beast. He eats grass for years. The Lord restores him. Why? Have I not done this in my own power for my own glory? Have I not labored and put this bread on my table? Who gave you that labor? Who gave you that bread? Who gave you that money? The Lord did. It's still the Lord who provides. Should you be diligent and responsible in labor? You bet you should. But be careful. Be careful. Be very careful to remember that even your daily bread comes from the Lord. You do not ultimately provide your substance. Your kind Father does. Chances are, if you're like me, you can't recall going hungry for very long. But you still ought to remember and pray. Pray for those who don't have their daily bread. This isn't just bread. This is the substance of life. Your clothes, your, your house, your things, your necessary things. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus even refers to himself as the bread of life. Some people think here, Jesus is praying, Lord, give us our daily word, our daily bread, our daily dose of Christ. Next, he says this, forgive us our debts. It has been said that the two most basic needs of children are food and forgiveness. If you've had children or being around children, you might be able to relate to that. Food and forgiveness. Lord, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. The parallel uh, prayer, almost parallel, in Luke 11 says, reminds us, says the word sin. This says debts. Forgive those who sinned against us. Do you have a, a debt with the Lord or furthermore, is there someone that you know of that you haven't forgiven? Why can you be forgiven? Why can you forgive anyone? Because you've been forgiven. Remember often, and I tell people often because I tell my own heart and soul this, First John 1, 9 and 10. What's it say? Yeah, if we're faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise. Recite that and think of that prayer often. 
If we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just even even in a salvific sense, not even primarily there in a salvific sense. But when we sin against the Lord as believers, we injure that relationship. And it needs to be restored often. Does that mean we need to be reborn? No. Jesus illustrates this in John 13 as he goes to wash Jesus' feet or, or as he goes to wash Peter's feet. Remember what he says? Peter says, ah, don't bathe me, Lord. Let me bathe you. He says, once you've been bathed, you need only wash your feet. What's he talking about there? Once you've been born again, once you've been born, once you've been washed, not only in the water, but the blood, you don't need to be washed. You don't need to be reborn again. You don't lose your salvation every time you fall into sin like some people teach. What you need is to restore fellowship with the Lord. Come to Him quickly. Come to Him quickly. This is temporary known sin, not a positional or illegal forgiveness. As we also forgive our debtors. What 1 Peter 3, 7 says, it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. Goes on and talks about that. And then at the end it says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now specifically there, your prayers for your wife's salvation. But why? You sin against Lord. There's a barrier there. There's not a salvific barrier, but a temporary injured relationship there. Go to him often. Go to him regularly and claim that forgiveness. Claim the blood of Christ. Mark eleven twenty four through 25 says this, I, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe and you will receive it, and it will be yours. Verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. What does this mean? Examine your hearts. Examine your lives. Is there someone that you're holding a grudge against? This stuff is so good for me to study. We were just talking earlier. Ezra sets up a, a standard for teaching. He says, study, practice, preach. I think through these things. Is there someone I'm holding a, a sin against in my heart? Is there someone who I feel like has sinned against me and I haven't forgiven them? Go, go forgive them right now. Right now, right tonight. Maybe right when you get done. Matthew five twenty four. Jesus says, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go to your brother right now. Get it done. Don't let the sun go down. Don't stay long on these things. Do you have someone you need to forgive? And finally, we look at this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How are we supposed to pray this if the very Spirit of the Lord, after he was baptized, led him into the desert, into temptation? It says, led him to be tempted of the devil. Forty days, forty nights he fasted, and boy, did he undergo temptation. What's going on here? This is a prayer of trust. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted for, of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does not tempt anyone, but he does allow his believers to undergo temptation and trial. Remember Job? He allows us to undergo temptation and trial, but he says this, Paul reminds us of this, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has seized, has overtaken you, except for what is common to man. God is faithful; He will provide a way out, so that you can stand up under the temptation. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Lord, deliver us from temptation. I believe this is specifically referring to unknown temptation. 
But we have a, t- we have a propensity or a, a tendency in, in conservative Christianity, I believe, to do two things, one of two things with the devil, and that's to just ignore him or to blame every little thing on him. I lost my car keys, that darn devil. Or the other is to see what some people call as a demon under every bush. But beware and be warned. The word is not silent on this. He says, the adversary, your devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. Resist him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. Is temptation real? Oh, it is very, very real. And you'd best pray that God would deliver you from it and help you to stand up under it. A battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and dominions. Okay? Temptation is very real. And let a man take heed if he thinks he stands, lest he fall. His prayer is a model and a worthy one at that. I believe the best one in Scripture for us to pray. And I believe that prayer works. I believe that prayer is effective. I believe that the effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I believe in prayer. And so I pray. This is a model for prayer. In fact, Abraham, servant, prayed and Rebekah appeared. Jacob wrestled and prayed and prevailed. Esau's mind was turned from 20 years of revenge. Joshua prayed and Achan was discovered. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. David prayed and Ithophel hung himself. Asa prayed and victory was won. Jehoshaphat prayed and God turned away his enemies. Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed and in 12 hours, 185,000 Assyrians were slain. Mordecai and Esther prayed, and the plot to destroy the Jews was thwarted, and Haman was hung on his own gallows. Ezra prayed, and Ahava was answered. Nehemiah prayed, and the king's heart was softened instantly. Elijah prayed, and three years of drought happened, and he prayed again, and three years of rain came. Elijah prayed, and a child was raised from the dead. Believers prayed, and Peter was released from jail. Prayer is effective. Prayer works. Why does prayer work? Because God is faithful and he said it would work. He said it does work. I've learned so much about prayer from godly men, from godly resources, and most of all from the word. Prayer is effective. I was sitting in a class the other day and the professor said this. He said, uh, he's honest. And he asked his professor a while back, he said, what if this is always just a, a big hoax, a big joke? What if God is playing with us, joking with us? asked his professor, and he said this. He said, before he even finished his answer, his answer from his previous professor was instant. He said, there's no evidence of that. Began to ask the same thing about prayer. What if prayer is just a big hoax? What if this is a joke? Does prayer really work? Now I've seen evidences of it in my own life. Began to think about that. What if prayer is just a, a hoax? There's no evidence of that. We read and we look at the scriptures and we see that God is faithful He's instructed us to pray. He's given us a great outline for prayer. And he says, prayer, why? Because prayer is effective. Because I get glory in prayer. Because I, I love communicating with my children. God has promised its effectiveness. Why does prayer work? Because God is faithful. Because he loves his children intimately. Someone has written this down. I cannot say our 
hour if I only live for myself. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor each day to act like his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am laying up no treasure there. I cannot say hallowed be thy name if I am not striving for holiness. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I am not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful event. I cannot say thy will be done if I am disobedient to his word. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I do not serve him here and now. I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I am disobedient or am seeking things by subterfuge. I cannot say forgive us our debts if I harbor grudge against anyone. I cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself in its past. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I do not put the whole armor of God on. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I do not give thy king thy loyalty due him from a faithful subject. I cannot say the power If I fear what men may do, I cannot say the glory if I am seeking honor only for myself. I cannot say forever if the horizon of my life is bounded completely by time. Prayer is hard work, but prayer is effective and powerful. And God has given us a beautiful instruction in his word for prayer. So pray. Pray without ceasing. Let's talk about what prayer fleshed out looks like in fruit. What is the fruit of prayer? We've got to wait next week for that. Andy will instruct us on that. Until then, pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray in conversations. Pray in the morning. Pray at night. Live a life of prayer modeled by the prayer of Christ. Every prayer doesn't have to be long. Spend time alone in prayer with God. Pray. This doctrine, this root of prayer should influence how our lives are. It should influence the prayer of our life. Pray, brothers and sisters. And remember, if you're not in the family of God, if you haven't by faith and repentance received Christ and been born again, the water and the spirit, you cannot pray. You cannot say, our Father who is in heaven, you need first to repent to turn from your sins and turn towards Christ. You cannot rightly pray, but if you can pray, brother, sister, pray. Do just that. I want to conclude. I want to wrap up with a prayer from Valley of Vision. Evan prayed from this earlier, and I'll do likewise. We didn't plan that, but that's the way it is. This one's called The Infinite and the Finite. Thou great I am, fill my mind with elevation and grandeur at the thought of a being with whom one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, a mighty God who amidst the lapse of worlds and the revolutions of empires feels no variableness, but is glorious in immortality. May I rejoice that while men die, the Lord lives, that while all creatures are broken reeds, empty cisterns, fading flowers, withering grass, he is the rock of ages, the foundation of living waters turn my heart from vanity from dissatisfactions from uncertainties of this present state to an eternal interest in christ let me remember that life is short and unforeseen and only an opportunity for usefulness give me a holy avarice to redeem the time to awake at every call to charity and piety so that i may feed the hungry clothe the naked instruct the ignorant reclaim the vicious forgive the offender diffuse the gospel, and show neighborly love to all. Let me live a life of self-distrust, dependence on thyself, mortification, crucifixion, 
and prayer. Let us pray together. Thank you for your instruction, Lord. Thank you for your promise that you are good and powerful, that you are God above gods. Any idol or image or thing that we would make, you're so far above it. You are a mighty king, a kind master, a wonderful Lord. And our will, we want our will to be to do your will. May we hallow your word in our hearts. Lord, thank you for giving us our daily substance. Thank you for providing. Help us to remember it's you who provides for us and not even us and ourselves. Help us to do your will. Lord, let your kingdom come quick. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Lord, forgive us our sins. We claim the forgiveness of Christ. Help us to forgive others, those in our lives that we might hold grudges against. Lord, keep us out of the way of temptation. Deliver us from temptation, from trial that we cannot stand up against, especially unforeseen ones, Lord. And help us to give you the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's because I'm aware of it in my own soul. But some of you guys come on Friday night just jazzed because you've been faithful in the word and faithful in prayer. And boy, you really sense that you're growing and learning and abounding more and more in love and patience and kindness. But that's not the case for all of you. Some of you feel run down and high in anxiety and strung out. And uh, I can identify with that myself. Some of you have been encouraged about your prayer life over the last few months as you've grown in prayer and grown in all these things. Some of you have been really discouraged. I get that as well. I'm not just trying to identify with you, but I get that. Some mornings my time with the Lord seems uh, real focused and real concentrated, and sometimes it doesn't. If you're human, you can agree with me. And uh, sometimes there's a sobriety as I teach and as we go through prayer, even as I think about my own prayer life, could you roll through the slides and go to the last verse? I was rejoicing, uh, even as Evan Tay often bring a lightness to singing and a, a joyfulness. Rejoicing with you all in this. <clears throat> I had forgotten that this was the last verse. Soon in glory, bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Do you guys remember, those of you who have been around for a while, when there was 20 or 30 of us around, what we used to do afterwards? Remember that, fellas, when we used to go, sometimes we'd go down to the sub, sometimes we'd go over to NBC, and we'd just sing. And we'd sing till, was it, yeah, I mean, till they, till they booed us out. We'd just sing these songs over and over, and, and uh, just rejoice and pray with one another and eat and sing and eat and sing and pray and share things and just recalling that. And I know we can't do that with a group this size anymore, but do that tonight as you stick around here. Sing and pray and fellowship together. There's going to be a whole bunch of pizza out there. Go eat some pizza. There's going to be a sign-up table for that retreat. Advance. Forgive me. <laughs> Advance. That'll be on the 5th through 6th. Next week, Andy will teach them the following week. We'll go do that. So sign up this week, get a spot in a cabin, and uh, bring your money next week. If you have 20 bucks tonight, great. If you don't, here's the other thing. If you don't have 20 bucks, period, come and see me. Um, Pablo has a lot of money. He's willing to spot you. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, Indiana, 
geological, am I saying that right? Indiana Geological State Survey <laughs> Research Center is out in Cardwell, Montana. So it's less than an hour and a half away, and we're going to go rejoice and focus on what we spent the last three weeks and then next week doing. And we're going to spend time alone in prayer there. It's out in the wilderness a little bit, not entirely, but I mean, it's out in the wilderness, but you're not going to get eaten by a by it. Well, I don't know. I guess they've been having a lot of animal traffic through there since the fires. But anyhow, it's out in a way, and you're going to spend time in the Word and in prayer and all those things. So we hope you'll join us for that. And uh, boy, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. But until it is, until faith turns to sight in prayer till praise, pray, pray. And uh, we'll see you again at this time next week. You're free to hang out as long as you'd like and uh, fellowship with one another, get to know some more people. Thanks for coming. See ya.